Just lift your hands and say, I know that I can make it. I know that I can stand. For no matter what may come my way, my life is in your hands. And when you're testing trials, they seem to get you down. All your friends and loved ones are nowhere to be found. Remember there's a friend in Jesus who will wipe your tears away. And if your heart is broken, just lift your hands and say, I know that I can make it, I know that I can stand, for no matter what may come my way, my life Good morning, Covenant College. Would you stand and sing with me? Heal us, Emmanuel.
protector of our souls. Thank you for your protection through the night and this day so far to allow us to be here together. Lord, I ask you that you would help us to never forget your grace and your mercy that allows us to move day to day. I ask for your forgiveness of our sins, Lord, whether that may be against our neighbors or against you. Have mercy on us. I ask that you will also continue to send aid to those victims of Irma and Harvey, Lord. And today, that you would bless Brad Voyles 
Please give us ears to hear, Lord, and please uh, bless his words that they may speak to us. Thank you for your son. And thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. I gotta be honest, I'm not doing so well. My wife and I started the Whole30 this month. <laughs> you may know what this is. It's basically um, five things that you can't have. No legumes, no dairy, no carbs, no sugar, and absolutely no joy or happiness <laughs> in life. The authors of the plan uh, let you know that there will be days of irritability. And I know this for a fact because I wanted to wrestle my son to the ground the other night as he seemed to be enjoying his blueberry muffin a little bit too much in my face. And so <laughs> if I'm edgy today, I apologize in advance. Please, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 9 as we look at what it is we are to boast in. But before we read that passage, I want to read you a story that I wrote for you. A story of three kings, the king before, the king after, and the king between. Now, the king before was the people's champion, a man of striking first impressions. He looked the part of a leader. He was a powerful man, standing taller than all other men of the nation, and the king before was very handsome. To look at him was to trust him. He inspired confidence in the people as he made them like other nations. But for all of his charisma and charm, he was not interested in God. It was the title of king and the power that went with it that mattered most to the king before. That's not to say he couldn't act the part of God's man when he needed to, but it was never out of devotion or love for God. Rather, he treated God as a means to a particular end. The king before was a man with few convictions, but plenty of ambitions, ever preferring his will to God's will. And never was this more clear than when he thought he knew better than God what was needed for the kingdom. Halfway obedience led to half-hearted repentance as the king before was quick to seek out the applause of the people while then blaming them for his disobedience. The king before enjoyed the perks of power while avoiding the responsibility that goes with it and so rejected God and ignored his word. Now the king after was incredibly wise when given the opportunity to ask God for anything, he requested wisdom that he might rule the people well. But God did not stop there. He was pleased to bless the king after with what the king did not even ask for. Riches, power, honor beyond compare. Gifted as a poet, a naturalist, a judge, a scholar, he was more knowledgeable than all others. His words of wisdom recorded in the holy book to bless future generations. Under his leadership, the nation expanded its reach and grew impossibly wealthy, and none more wealthy than the king. The king after loved the Lord, but he had other loves as well. Passions in which he would boast and find his identity, idols to which he gave the power 
to ultimately destroy his kingship. The king after started well and chose wisely, but his reign was marked by a pattern of poor choices, cultivating other loves, and choosing to feed other appetites rather than growing his relationship with his God. The trappings of the king were a powerful distraction. Wealth, power, influence led him towards halfway worship and a divided heart. His great wisdom outside of a relationship with his God ultimately became foolishness as he married foreign wives, worshipped foreign gods, and merely shared part of his heart with his God. But the king between was a man after God's own heart, a warrior poet, a dancer, a fighter, a ruler. From his youth, he exhibited a joyful exuberance, a fearless confidence that God was present and at work. Anointed as king when just a boy, he demonstrated patient faithfulness for 20 years before he ascended to the throne. In that time, he learned to trust and to rest in God's providence. Whether fighting lions or giants or the enemies of God's people, he fought with God's favor, ever confident that God would win the fight. Where others saw obstacles or impossibilities, he saw opportunities for God to bring glory to himself. And when he did finally ascend to the throne, he did so as a witness that God was truly king. He used his throne as a pulpit to proclaim the sovereignty of his God. The king between never hesitated to ask God for what he needed, and his life was marked by unending praise of his God. But he was also acquainted with grief, abandonment, and sorrow. He knew the debilitating power of unconfessed sin. And for the king between, nothing was to be feared more than the absence of God. In his sin, he abused his power. He destroyed a family, and he murdered a man to cover it up. But when confronted with his sin... The king between fully owned and fully repented of his acts and fell on the mercy of God. For the story of the king between is a gospel story, a story of God doing for him what he could not do for himself, a life characterized by God's grace, mercy, judgment, and love. We'll return to that, but first let's look at Jeremiah chapter 9, 23-24 reads this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word for the reality that it presents to us of our condition and of our deep need to know you. May your spirit now take my fumbling words and make them effective in the hearts of all who might have ears to hear. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I began working at Covenant in 2005, I had opportunity to meet uh, every other week with a very wise woman. She had attended Covenant in the 60s and graduated and had been affiliated 
for the college for the decades after. One comment she made to me in my first year has stayed with me over time. I've never shared this in a, a large setting like this before, and so I um, think it may hurt some feelings. She told me covenant in its effort to produce critical thinkers often instead produces critical people. It was an observation she'd made over decades of interacting with students. I've reflected on that comment several times over the years, and I've shared it with a handful of people. Um, but it's led me to this chapel talk, to be honest. As I start year 13, I'm, I weighed against my own observations, and, and I'm biased. I think this is an incredible place. I, I think what we're doing here is unique in Christian higher ed, and I would take you guys as students and our staff and our faculty, our alumni, and put, put you up against uh, any other college. I, I, I'm that confident in that. I'm amazed every year at what I see the Lord doing in your lives, your minds and hearts as you do kingdom work, as you care well for one another. But that said, I believe there is truth to what she said. I think there are inherent dangers associated with Christian education that I want us to be aware of as we examine ourselves. And that is primarily the danger of mistaking knowing about God for knowing God. Of substituting information about God for a living relationship with Him. The distinction may not be an important one at first glance, for both are certainly important and good. I deeply appreciate our core and the, the Bible and theological education that you're receiving is right and worthy. This isn't an anti-intellectual rant. We need to be in our Bibles where God reveals himself to us. Good theology ought always lead to a fervent doxology, meaning it must travel from our head to our hearts. I simply fear that a well-honed mind for God can be found wanting, if not also joined with a Christ-loving, Christ-knowing, Christ-exalting heart. I believe that knowledge about God <clears throat> without a relationship with God can not only move us from being critical thinkers to simply critics, but can also more importantly leave us in despair when our lives don't go as we had planned. And I believe Jeremiah speaks to this in these two verses. Remember the context in which he is writing. He's writing to a people who are ignoring him. It's clear that they have rejected him. And according to verse 3, they do not know him. They have rejected an intimate relationship with him to trust in themselves. And into this condition, he speaks and says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Now, we live in a time where um, boasting is, is, even, you know, is encouraged and even celebrated. Who hasn't engaged in a little trash talking, a few humble brags now and then? Maybe, maybe our boasting is more indirect in the way we complain. Sometimes the boasting isn't with our mouth, but with our display, with what we post how we want people to see and think about us. Not, not evil things in and of themselves, but things we may give too much of our love and devotion to which then allow, in which we then allow them to define us. A boast is never just a boast. It's actually an attempt to establish my value and my worth in my performance as I compare myself to others. Boasting 
can be an insidious act of faithlessness. We're not simply boasting, but are actually rooting our identity in the object of our boast. These three boasts, wisdom, might, and riches, are worth unpacking as we consider our own context here at a college. When you ask a person why they go to college, they may default to these three things, wisdom or knowledge, power or influence, the ability to have a job, riches, earning power, wealth. Again, not bad things in and of themselves, but a closer look reveals the power that they can wield over us. Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself, but riches improperly valued can be absolutely self-destructive. When we elevate riches to the throne of our heart, they become false gods that enslave us. Power or influence can be a dangerous God as well when we boast in it to the exclusion of a relationship with the one who is all-powerful. Now, our power trips can look a little bit different. For some here, it's that overwhelming desire to be respected, to be considered the best, to be admired for how good I am at something, not just win, but, but to dominate. For others, it takes the form of power through codependency, manipulating others to my will by withholding affection and attention. Or maybe we love the power of being needed, relishing the power of being a savior to someone rather than pointing them to the savior. And wisdom or knowledge, for its own sake, we are warned in scripture, can and does puff us up and make us judgmental. Each of these can lead us to boasting, which serves to separate us from God from God and cause distress and anxiety in our hearts. Data from our own campus study confirms national data. We are an increasingly anxious and depressed society. So what in the world is going on? I believe these verses in Jeremiah provide some clues as to what is at root. In a performance-based worldview, you are what you do. And it's crushing us. When these things are our identity, am I smart enough? Am I fitting in? Am I doing enough? Does anybody like me? If my performance is the source of my identity, then it's all up to me to achieve. And that is provoking in me an anxiety that's eating me alive. I want everyone to notice me, respect me, and admire me, so I'm going to allow these things to define me. My boast serves to show where my trust is. To all this, Jeremiah responds, or God responds through Jeremiah in verse 24. Instead, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's not the boasting itself that it's bad. It's that we must be careful of the object of our boast, for it's here that we find our identity and our hope. And we see clearly here the command that where we need to find our identity, where we need to boast is in knowing God. It's in an intimate relationship with the living Lord. We need to move from boasting in stuff to boasting in knowing Him. But it's not an easy move to make. To boast in ourselves is what we do. We've trained ourselves to learn to rest and to trust in what we can do, how we can perform, rather than in a personal relationship with the God who transforms us over time in relationship with Him. It's hard to do even at a place here like Covenant. 
We want to boast in ourselves. We want to trust in ourselves. We want to define ourselves in this way. But what, is this, what does this really mean to know God? J.I. Packer, in his seminal work, Knowing God, defines knowing God as it's more than knowing about Him. It's a matter of dealing with Him as He opens up to you, and it's being dealt with by Him as He takes knowledge of you. Listen to this. Knowing about Him is a necessary precondition of trusting in Him, but the width of our knowledge about Him is no gauge of the depth of our knowledge of Him. There's difference between having knowledge about something and having intimate experience with it. It's drastically different. A couple months before my first son was born, we were, my, my wife is here today, she doesn't know I'm going to share this story. We had opportunity to engage in these childbirth classes and, and I participated and, and learned and for as much as a clothespin on my ear can simulate contractions, <laughs> that's only people who are parents laugh at that. <laughs> I participated and knew. A month later, there was an opportunity then for a breastfeeding class and my wife wanted me to go. And my default was, I'm not sure what my partnership in this part of the, the, the raising of the child is going to be, but if you think it wise, um, I'll go. She assured me that there would be lots of dads there. <laughs> and sure enough, I was one of one dads that were there that day. Seventy Major points. 75 people and, you know, women and me, and all the seats were taken, so we ended up in the front row, and so for the whole 90 minutes, I represented the male race, or the, the, the male gender with any kind of point of view that the teacher wanted to be aware of. But we were prepared. We had knowledge about breastfeeding. We had heard all we needed to hear. Fast forward a month, and my child, my son, is born. And that moment comes that evening when my wife gets to hold him and, and feed him for the first time, and he, he refuses. It's frustrating. Nurses assure us it's normal. And the next day, same story. He just won't, the technical word is latch. He won't latch on. We go home, and the story is more the same. It's me, my wife, my son, and my mother-in-law all trying to figure out why won't this kid eat there were tears cried, not only by my son, the frustrations mounted, and finally, about the evening of day three, in the most surreal and awkward moment of my life, with me holding my son and his head steady, and my mother-in-law opening his mouth wide, and my wife holding her, her food delivery device, <laughs> keeping it PG. In perfect coordination, we achieved latch. Again, we had knowledge about, but none of the diagrams that we were shown had three people working together to make this happen. The future benefit of this came with more children, 
as we learn the reality, the intimate knowledge. Uh, for other people who shared their challenges with us, we could speak out of our challenge as well. Intimate awareness of God allows us to trust in Him when things don't work out. When we only know about God, we believe that if we are simply faithful, if we do all the right things, learn all the right truths, then life is going to be just fine until it isn't. We experience failure, we experience loss, we experience deep discouragement and have this faith crisis where we wonder, has God abandoned me? Our knowledge about Him has not prepared us. We believe we must have done something wrong to deserve this from God. It's when we study our disappointments that we see where our identity really is. It's in the fire where we learn where our true security is and what we really value. Knowledge about God is necessary for belief. But knowledge of God is what will give us peace when we experience soul-crushing loss. For though we may not know why it has happened, we know that through this living relationship with Him, that it didn't happen because we did something wrong. It wasn't due to our sin, because we know through knowing Him that Christ has paid that price and declared it is finished. When we move from knowing about God to knowing God, everything begins to change. We move from wanting what Christ can give us to wanting Christ. From asking, what is God's will for my life, to simply asking, what is God's will? From being able to state what the gospel means in theory, that I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm adopted, from knowing that to actually trusting that it is true. From viewing my sins as failures that make me unworthy of Christ's love to seeing them as opportunities to repent and praise Christ for his complete sufficiency. We move from caring disproportionately about how other people see us and think about us to in turn being able to see others as more significant than ourselves. We move from being quick to remind others to repent to being quick to repent. And the list could go on and on. Michael Cromarty recently passed away. He's an alum of Covenant College who served the kingdom well in D.C. for many years bridging the gap between journalists and politicians, lobbyists, policymakers. He wrote this, we've got to find a way to be both people of the word who hold on to strong doctrinal theological convictions. At the same time, these doctrinal convictions have got to be rooted in the kind of people that Jesus calls us to be over and over again so that we're known as people who love our neighbor, as people who are magnanimous at all costs. The first people to be there when a friend whether, they believe, whether they're a believer or not, is in crisis. Cromarty got it. He lived it out. Uh, know your stuff, people. Be critical thinkers, critical readers, engage in debate, but never lose sight of who you are debating. It's a brother or sister in Christ or just an image, or an image bearer. Know that what the greater good is. Again, when we find our identity in what we have or what we do or how others think of us, we are going to destroy ourselves. When the answer is try harder, learn more, collect more, be better, we become exhausted, anxious, and susceptible to enthroning false gods. The only answer, our only boast, is to know God. I shared the story of the three kings at the beginning because I think the lives of Saul 
Solomon and David are incredibly instructive for us. Saul as king, he had power, he had influence, um, but he defined himself by that power. He found his identity and his role as king and therefore held tightly to it and did everything he could to hold on to it, to be seen as successful, being swayed by the people, blaming them for his failures, and ultimately it all crashed down upon him. Solomon could boast in having wisdom, power, and riches, more than anybody ever has. He began his reign well, but his wisdom ultimately became foolishness. Life in Christ is about not just the first choice we make, but every choice we make after that. He chose not to know God better, not to follow him, and instead chased after foreign gods, and his heart withered away, compromise after compromise. Jim Downing, the founder of the Navigators, was asked the question, why do leaders fail? And his answer was, they learn the secret of being fruitful without being pure. And the picture he paints is a picture of a hollowed out tree that appears in full bloom, but at the first high wind, the first storm, it topples over, rotting from the inside. But David, David had deep roots. As Eugene Peterson writes, David had a God-dominated imagination. The single biggest characteristic of David is that he knew God, he believed God, he thought about God, he prayed to God, he delighted in God. We talk about the difference between knowing about and knowing God, and the distinction is clear. Saul and Solomon knew about God. David knew his God. For him, God was personal and present. What made David the man after God's own heart was not that he was perfect, not that he was without sin. We, we know that's not the case. What made him the man after God's own heart was that he knew God and was submissive to the Word of God. Unlike Solomon, David's heart was undivided. Unlike Saul, David's repentance was without excuse. He could fully repent, for he knew his God and knew that his God delighted in him and would forgive him. If you take nothing else from today, take this, one, one half of one verse, you can memorize this with me. Psalm 1819b. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Say it with me. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Why can't this be enough? Why isn't it enough that he died for me, that he rescued me, that he delights in me? Often it quite simply is not enough because we don't know him. To know him is to make him the center of my life and to trust him, to trust that he's done what he said he would do, to trust that he's going to do what he promised to do. The last bit of this here in our last couple minutes, Jeremiah says, Lord says through Jeremiah, I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, and these things I delight. To know him is to understand those things about him. What is fascinating about those three, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, those are the attributes, those are the characteristics of the Lord that are revealed and exercised when he makes his covenant and when he keeps his covenant. And David knew this. At the heart of God's covenant is his desire to have a relationship with his chosen people. 
Jeremiah says later in a familiar verse to some of us, chapter 31, 31 through 34, I'll just read the tail end in the interest of time. No longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This is the new covenant. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Knowing about God is important. Don't, please don't go to your professor and say it. Scripture speaks of knowing God, though, as something beyond a mere intellectual exercise. Please study his word. Seek him out. Ask him hard questions. Repent in full confidence that he knows and loves you. Knowing God centers on Jesus Christ, who kept the law and fulfilled that new covenant to bring us into relationship with God. As we do know him, as we find him to be true and all-sufficient, we will be able to join with David in saying, he rescued me because he delighted in me. May this be our only boast, that I know God and he knows me. Amen and amen. Let's stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from